When I went out to visit Jim Kearney at his ranch in Columbus, Texas, we started by walking and driving around the place. It's a dead end. It's still kind of wet down here. I'm going to put it in four wheel drive. Okay. Just in case. We crossed an old road where the wheels of wagons cut deep ruts into the earth. That was around the time of the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. We also passed a bunch of truly majestic old live oak trees. Jim and his brother used to climb way up high in those live oaks when they were kids. Jim told me it felt like they were birds. That tree is gorgeous. Isn't it? <laughs> then Jim and I went back up to the house. Jim had set out a few things he'd saved from his time with the Army in Vietnam. There were letters and some pictures. He showed me the canvas bag that contained the equipment he used as a combat medic. And there was an old shirt of his with a bullet hole in it. Jim handed me a typed letter signed by a Methodist preacher. He had known Jim as a young man in Columbus. It was dated May 17, 1969. The paper itself was extremely thin, and I was nervous to touch it. But the words drew me in. The letter was addressed to the chairman of Texas Local Board No. 44, Mr. Sam K. Seymour III. In 1969, I realized, Seymour would have been the chair of Jim's local draft board. Here's what it said. After several hours of extended conversation with Jim Kearney, I'm convinced that his belief in God and his convictions as to how to serve best the cause of humanity and of his country are credible. Jim chooses not to fire a gun or drop a bomb, but he is willing to serve what he believes to be the best interests of his country and of humanity by relieving the suffering of wounded men as a non-combatant 1AO in medical service. The preacher's letter was a form of support for Jim to be allowed to enter the army as a non-combatant conscientious objector the local draft board held Jim's fate in its hands. I'm Evan Windham. From the Bullock Museum, this is Vietnam on Tape, a Texas story podcast. Before we get any further, I need to let you know that this podcast does contain vivid descriptions of war, audio of military combat, and strong language. So it may not be appropriate for some listeners. By the time Jim Kearney was drafted in 1969, he'd become firmly opposed to the war on moral grounds. I thought that what we were doing over there was it was just absolutely reprehensible, and I just wasn't going to participate in it. Jim had an offer from a Canadian university that would have allowed him to leave the U.S. for graduate school. But Jim also had a deep connection to the land where he grew up, in Columbus, Texas, and a sense of duty. He requested Form 150 for conscientious objectors from his local draft board. Conscientious objection was recognized by the Continental Congress early in the American Revolution. But until a Supreme Court ruling in 1965, conscientious objection was only recognized based on religious motives. The 1965 Supreme Court ruling opened the door for draftees like Jim to make a case on moral and ethical grounds. Jim didn't really think he had much chance of success, but he filled out the form and he gathered supporting documents, like the letter from the preacher. To his surprise... Jim's request was approved. Jim felt the Army had hurt him, that they'd offered him a fair deal. So he said no to Canada, yes to the Army. In my mind, I had said, you know, we've struck a bargain, and I'm going to live up to my share of it. That bargain actually began during the World War II era. That's Jean Mansavage, 
She's a military historian working for the Department of Defense. We heard from her in our first episode. She wrote her doctoral dissertation on conscientious objectors. In 1943, Secretary of War Stimson actually restricted noncombatants to the medical corps to encourage them to choose joining the military. These men would still be members of the military. They would still receive pay and GI benefits. So it was, it was a bargain. These individuals could adhere to their conscience, not carry weapons, not kill, and still be allowed to serve in the military and fulfill their responsibility as a citizen. Almost all of them trained in Texas. 98% of all non-combatant conscientious objectors trained at the medical training center at Fort Sam Houston. Fort Sam for short, the big military base in San Antonio. The commander at Fort Sam, Colonel Charles Pixley, he estimated that between 6 and 8% of all the individual draftees who came through the medical training center were noncombatant conscientious objectors. Many of them came from a long line of military officers with parents or grandparents who had gone to the military service academies, and they believed wholeheartedly that the military had a right to exist and that it served a very fundamental purpose in the country. Their personal beliefs simply did not permit them to carry weapons and kill in war. Jean Mansevich has never met Jim Kearney in person, but the more she and I talked on the phone, the more Jean just about perfectly described Jim's situation in the summer of 1969. When Jim got his draft notice, it came from the Selective Service, a federal agency, but his fate was really in the hands of a few of his neighbors, especially Mr. Sam K. Seymour. There was a kind of boss of Colorado County, Mr. Sam K. Seymour. He was head of the draft board. He was head of the Democratic Party. He owned the savings and loan. He owned the lumber yard. He was the announcer at the football game. Could you shed a little bit of light on what that claim process was during the Vietnam era for conscientious objector status? All young men, 18 to 26, had to register when they turned 18. And within a couple of months, the Selective Service would send a classification questionnaire to determine what their draft status was going to be, because there were all sorts of other deferments that individuals could get if people were still of high school age, or they were in college, or if they had dependents, or they worked in agriculture. There were a whole host of other deferments other than conscientious objection. So there was one part of that form that asked about conscientious objection. They had to fill that part out, and then they would get a form from the Selective Service System, another one, that asked for them to explain their pacifist belief systems. Then the local board would review all this information and either grant or deny whatever classification it was. And if the um, local board, just by the paperwork, didn't want to grant the status, a young man could ask for a personal hearing before his local board He'd be able to explain himself in person, take a witness, take more documentation to prove that he lived his pacifist belief system. And then the local board could either grant or deny the status. And if they denied the status, it could go into a whole series of appeal processes. The local draft boards are, the, are, the, are really the linchpin in all this. Lewis Hershey, who was the director of the Selective Service System from 1940 until 1970, referred to the local boards as little groups of neighbors. So this was really an attempt to allow local control over what young men were sent to war, because they felt that those local boards 
best knew their local populations and who were genuine about their beliefs or truly had dependence or were actually in school. They had kind of their finger on the pulse. But the problem is these guys were primarily World War I or II vets. Uh, they were highly patriotic men who had served in the military. And they may or may not have believed in someone's rights of conscience. When I was a junior in high school, I worked for Mr. Sam in his lumber yard. And he was a commander of the Veterans of Foreign War. He had been in the Rainbow Division in World War I. So that's all I can think about. He just granted it. I mean, he, the board did what he told them to do. Jim Kearney had been offered a bargain. He accepted it. He was inducted into the United States Army as a 1AO conscientious objector. Jim reported for basic training at Fort Sam in San Antonio. There he was assigned to train with a group of other conscientious objectors, called COs for short. All would be trained as combat medics. None would be trained to carry weapons. A lot of people nowadays don't even understand. I try to explain it to people and they say, you're crazy. You mean you were in Vietnam without a gun? That's Bill Clamero. Bill and Jim met in basic training at Fort Sam that summer. They've been friends ever since. They've done a lot of things in their lives, but only recently have they begun trying to come to terms with the history they share and that few remember today. The story of close to 15,000 conscientious objectors who served in Vietnam. Once upon a time, it was a cozy little place, not anymore. Yeah. It's a friggin' oh. city. Oh. Bill recently flew to Texas to visit Jim. They invited me to join them on a trip to San Antonio, where they'd gone through basic training together at Fort Sam Houston. Security was tight. But as we drove around the base, Jim recognized a spot where he used to hide a car. He and Bill used it on their days off to get back to the ranch. A big part of our trip to San Antonio was to meet up with another veteran, Fred Irvin. He was in the same training class as Jim and Bill. Jim had tracked Fred down thanks to a scrap of paper he'd rediscovered in his Vietnam memorabilia, his Fort Sam class roster from 1969. We plan to meet Fred at the East End Church of God in Christ. Today, Fred's the pastor there. His church stands right across from Fort Sam Houston. It was the first time the three of them had seen each other since basic training, half a century before. Hello, Fred. Jim, uh, we're outside uh, your church. Within seconds, Fred appeared at the door. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> man, oh man, oh man. This is something else. Do you remember me, Fred? Yeah, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Hey. Yes, sir. <laughs> I got you 50 years ago. Wow, this is something now. This yeah. is something? Yeah, I don't believe it. Fred invited us into the fellowship hall. Has he ever seen you? Yeah, it's nice. Oh, right. He brought out a kind of yearbook and started paging through it. What is this, Fred? It says class list. See right there, it says class list right there. Company D, yeah. that, that's it. That, that was it, yeah. yeah, okay. The truth about this, I don't visit this very much. Yeah. Because for me, it was a bad thought. Yeah. But the best thought was that I came back alive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. We, as a matter of fact, we came back alive. Yeah. 
Have you thought about any of our old classmates? You know, you were the commander. Yeah, I know. I remember I, that. And I was the vice commander. <laughs> yeah, we, we bunked together. Uh-huh. Yeah, because we had to make up rosters for guard duty right. and, all, and all that sort of yes. thing. And we were supposed to keep the guys in line. We had a couple of troublemakers. Oh, we did. We did. And, you know, I, I, I had know, a list. These guys weren't all meek just because they're CEOs. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, they weren't. <laughs> Could, can we, uh, could I ask you, how did you come to be a conscientious objector? It's through my church. It's my dad was a pastor. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be a life preserved than a life destroyer. Listening to them talk in Fred's church really brought home for me what a deep and life-changing choice it was for all of these men to enter the military as conscientious objectors. In 1969, Fred, Jim, and Bill all had strong objections to the war in Vietnam. For Fred, those objections grew out of his religious background. For each of them, their moral code included a strong sense of responsibility and duty. And for that, they put their lives on the line. I really trusted my life for my country. I really did. I, mean, I had nothing to protect me. I'm giving my life for my country. Yeah. It's a special kind of patriotism. That it is. Some people think you can be patriotic if you bear a gun and fight for other people. Because there's another kind of patriotism. Sure it is. And sacrifice. That, and that, that's the part I'm coming right? It was our heart was in it, our soul was in it, our mind was in it. We put ourselves in it yeah. to do a job yeah. for our country. Yeah. We didn't hold anything back. Because yeah. what you have is your life. And if you trust that, what else can you give? Yeah. And that's what we did. As we sat looking at Fred's scrapbook, Jim thought back to the day at Fort Sam when they were all convened for graduation. They'd had 16 weeks of training. Now it was time to get their orders to deploy. They had a parade formation, mm -hmm. and we marched out company by the company. Right. And they read our order, or they handed us our orders. And all of us who were COs to a man yes. went to Vietnam. And a lot of the other from the other companies went to Germany or they went stateside, but all of us went to Vietnam. Where there was combat, the military needed its medics. Fred was deployed to an infantry unit in Vietnam. Bill went to a tank unit. A bit of a lucky break since tanks were pretty much useless in the mud of Vietnam. At first, Jim was attached to an artillery unit. Then he was transferred to the 35th Infantry Division during the invasion of Cambodia. Finally, he was transferred to a medevac unit with the 1st Air Cavalry. They were headquartered at Phuc Vinh, far forward in the combat zone. For medics with just 16 weeks of training, it was trial by fire. Medics out in the field, and especially during that early period, we learned by doing yes. on-the-job training on live people. We could sew people up there. Uh, we were prescribing shot men, yeah. what today only a doctor can do. Cricothyroidotomies, yeah. starting IVs, I, I mean, all yeah, that. We learned right. by doing it, by just doing by it. simply watching. That's somebody true. sew somebody else up, uh, and you got a needle and thread and did it yourself. Fred, Jim, and Bill were officially designated as 1AO conscientious objectors. They did not carry weapons. So for them, armed self-defense was not an option. And there was an apparent contradiction, a built-in tension, between the mission of soldiers in Vietnam and the mission of CO combat medics. Bill described it to me as two different kinds of patriotism. 
as one medical doctor, one of the officers once put it, you always confront the enemy that's death. We're always trying to defeat death. The soldier's mission is to create death, is to kill if necessary. The medic's mission is to prevent death. The one AO is there without weapons and knowing that in the situation he might not be able to defend himself. All of the soldiers are making sacrifice, of course, because they're all in danger. But the one AO medic, the non-combatant medic, adds to that by already relinquishing, renouncing self-defense. The bargain the military made with its conscientious objectors dictated that no commanding officer could order you to take up arms. Not that it never happened. Despite the occasional test of wills, Jim says his conscientious objector status was largely respected during his tour of duty in Vietnam. And as these three men proved themselves in the field, they found they became valued members of the units they served. If you made it through that early trial by fire and you gained confidence, Mm -hmm. then that's when you really had the respect of your people and they would take care of you. That's so true. I had a situation where as one company said, we're not going anywhere without the medic. You can't go, we're not going. And uh, I mean, I was treated very, very, very well. Jim, Fred, and Bill talked in the fellowship hall for almost an hour and a half. I had a bunch of questions I was going to ask, but they really got rolling. So I just sat and listened as they traded story after story. Some were grim, some absurd, some even made them laugh. At a certain point, though, Jim and Bill and Fred begin to feel the weight of their shared history in Vietnam, the weight of revisiting vivid, traumatic events, and trying to make some sense of it all 50 years later. It was time to put away Fred's scrapbook. A lot of that information that was ingrained, is yeah. <laughs> washed out, you know, you kind of like bypass it. I mean, right now I can't watch movies, it's make me feel real terrible. I mean, I looked through this here and it gave me a bad feeling. I mean, you know, uh, you probably know, and, and Bill knows, uh, you meet people who were never able to put Vietnam behind them. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it, it really became destructive to mm-hmm. real life. And I think that's true. That's the unspoken cost of a lot of wars that people don't know yeah. how it can wreck them. But for me, I, I made the decision that I wasn't going to let it dominate oh, no. my life. I was going to yeah. put it behind me. Yes, sir. But you suddenly reach a point where I feel like I do have to come to terms with that experience. Uh You know, at some point you've got to, uh, you know, look at the skeletons in the closet. Oh, yeah. In our next episode of Vietnam on Tape, we'll hear from a retired colonel who flew medevac missions in Vietnam and relied on medics like Jim Kearney. The medics on the battlefield were out what we call outside the wire. They were out in the field with the soldiers, only they did not carry a weapon. And they would just carry their medical supplies. They were very courageous members of the combat team. This Texas Story podcast is produced by the Bullock Museum in downtown Austin. We tell stories through people, places, and original artifacts, so everything we do is because of people like you who help keep Texas history and culture alive. This podcast is no exception, and we'd like to thank Jim Kearney, 
Bill Clamuro, Fred T. Irvin, and Gene Mansavage for being part of it. This episode was edited and mixed by David Shulman. Visit the Bullock Museum online at thestoryoftexas.com, where you can also share your Texas story in the Texas Story Project. It might even find its way into the next season of our podcast. And if you're ever in Austin, be sure to stop by and visit the Bullock Museum. For Vietnam on Tape, I'm Evan Windham.